I think we are very close to a catastrophic end for our civilization. The earth is our womb. We were, we were sort of born and, and grew in the womb, but eventually we have to escape. If we don't escape, that's it. We're never going to answer the big questions. We're never going to survive as a species. We have to escape the earth. Hello there, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. And this show is brought to you by Casa, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, phishing attacks, there are just too many ways to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with a Carter multi-sig wallet, you get to take custody of your Bitcoin, but you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones which you get to distribute into different locations. And this is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more about this, I have been a customer for over a year. You can hit me up in my DMs or drop me an email. Happy to answer your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, we have my new sponsor to the show, which is BCB Group, who provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a bank, a reliable one that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. So I've moved all my business banking across to BCB. And you know what? I could not be happier. It is so nice to finally be dealing with a bank which understands my business and understands Bitcoin and isn't putting hurdles in my way. BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. And they also have this amazing fiat network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had some trouble with this. If you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out, then please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, we've got Ledger the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you as a Bitcoiner to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. It's over four years now, and I'm still using that same Nano S I bought back then. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up is BlockFi. Now you can get up to $250 in Bitcoin when you join BlockFi. They've launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards Credit Card provides the easiest way for you to earn more Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every purchase with no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards and every purchase. But if you're interested in finding out more and you do want to take out that bonus, you want to get the $250 in Bitcoin, then please head over to BlockFi.com forward slash Peter, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I dot com forward slash Peter. Hi, VJ. Hey, Pete. Thanks for coming in, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me in Malibu. This is incredible. You just doxed us, man. What kind of Bitcoin are you? 
They're going to come down. As... I'm not very good at OPSEC. <laughs> I'm the worst. Matt O'Dell always shits on me for it. So. <laughs> Mate, listen, uh, we've done a few interviews before. We've never had a chance to do it in person. Uh, so I'm very excited about this. Yeah, and, and I said this last night. It's good to see your face. Yeah, to to be here with you, and uh, it 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 just feels nice to be with a person. So yeah, well we got we got about five minutes in Miami. Uh, we got to hang out at your party mm-hmm. after the launch of your book, which I got my very special limited edition version. That's right. Which I uh, really appreciate. Thank you very much for that. Uh, it's an incredible book. I still recommend your article from Medium to everyone as their first. Uh, place to go and uh, and the uh, bullish case for Bitcoin has essentially become a term, the opening term for people is, who say to me, uh, I don't understand Bitcoin, I want to learn about Bitcoin. I was like, you need to go and read the bullish case for Bitcoin. If they find your article or your book, I don't care as long as they go and read one. But congratulations on that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad it's found its little niche where people who uh, don't know much about Bitcoin, don't know much about money, uh, don't know much about the history of how money came about uh it's a it's it's become an introduction for those people so I'm, I'm glad it's found its niche will you ever write another one the bearish case for ethereum <laughs> ethernet the bearish case for ethernet yeah 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 i could see i could see myself working on something like that we uh did we ever make that show i can't even remember because we talked about we made the bullish case for bitcoin first show yeah and then we talked about making the bearish case for ethereum i can't even I, remember if we did I, I never wrote the article that was that was the problem and i wrote the bullish case for bitcoin when i had one kid i'm about to have four kids now and it, it's more a, a time thing I, I i think a podcast would be great yeah yeah because it's something where i could you know articulate the ideas without uh, having to write them down. And the problem for me is I'm a very, very slow writer. I, the bullish case for Bitcoin took me a year to write. It was like a sentence a day kind of thing. It was also because I was working and I had, you know, a newborn. Um, but I'm, I'm generally a perfectionist and cringe when I say something that doesn't sound right. <laughs> well, we won't talk about having four kids apart from the fact that I think you're a psychopath. I've got two and it's, it's enough for me, four, I don't know. Are you going to stop? Are you done now? Yes, we we're, we're done. No fifth. <laughs> no, uh, we we did we did IVF because okay. um, we're a little older and it was hard for us to get pregnant. And uh, we had five embryos. One of them didn't work, and four of them stuck. So I feel incredible. Oh, wow. I, I feel incredibly grateful uh, to be blessed with four kids, and that it it worked out so well for us. It's, it it is actually very difficult to get pregnant as you get older. Um, so my advice to any any people who are listening is if you're in your 20s, start thinking about having kids now. <laughs> well, the, the other advantage of that is uh, I'm 43. I don't know how old you are. We're the same vintage. We were born in the same year. You're 78? Yeah. When's your birthday? November. We're very close. Yeah, we are. We've, we, talk, we've talked about we talked this. Have we talked about this? Yeah, yeah. We're this, I, I, I said we're the same vintage. We, that was three years ago, but yeah. Are you also a Scorpio? Yeah. Right, we've given a lot of info. I'm not asking for the exact date because then it'll be, well, just give me your PIN code. Do you, do you need my social security number as well? your social security number. Yeah, we're the same vintage. Wow. That's very cool. Well, listen, uh, you, you're at the other end. You're the wise dad offering wisdom to I don't know about that. And I'm the young dad who can go to the football with his son. So yeah. I, I got the other end of the stick. <laughs> I'm about to, my first one's about to, uh, he's within months now of leaving home. Yeah, I can't imagine like when you when you're in it, when you're in that early stage when they're, you know, my kids are all less than 5. Um 
you can't even imagine what it feels like for your kids to be leaving the house or what it will be like when they have their own opinions and you can't control what they do. So uh, I, I always love speaking to parents who've got older kids and they can tell me what it feels like. It's wild, uh, especially the last year with my son. He's become a full adult, mm-hmm. not just having his own opinions, but a, the full ability to look after himself. You know, he's learning to drive. Uh, he has a girlfriend. He's preparing for university. He has a job. You know, some days he just gets him home, himself home from school, gets ready, goes to work. He, he, he's fully self-sufficient. But you never think they're going to leave home, and then at one point they do, and this is coming, and it's... Uh, I've really mixed emotions about it. I feel uh, excited for him and going to miss him. It's a, it's a weird thing, but it goes quick. Like the cliche says, it goes really quick. The other thing is interesting is how different they can be. So he's mildly interested in Bitcoin. Mm. Him and his friends are artists, so they want to mint NFTs, of course. And I'm like, you're a disgrace. <laughs> you're a disgrace to the McCormack name. But my daughter, she's orange-pilled. She's like on it. So you might have an interesting time to see which of the four become orange pilled and which don't give a fuck. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I haven't really talked to them about money yet. They're not at that age. But I'll be interested to see how they receive what I, I tell them because a lot of my ideas are kind of, uh, you know, not within the status quo spectrum. They're kind of far out there on a lot of different topics, not just Bitcoin, but, you know, politics and various other things so when they go through school uh they hear what the status quo is they're taught the status quo so i'll be interested to see what that dynamic is and whether there's some rebellion against you know me as a dad because i believe this crazy stuff it's going to be interesting well maybe they'll be running a little group in the playground teaching Mises to everybody else. <laughs> I hope so. I hope they'll be orange pilling their friends. We'll see. <laughs> well listen, I'm really excited about this topic. Because it's something I'm aware of. I'm a bit of a space nerd. Um, and the Fermi paradox is something I've read about quite a bit. Uh, there was a really great article written on it by that guy, uh, Wait But Why. Yeah. He covered it, uh, which was my first exposure to it. And I was just like, whoa, what the fuck? This blows my mind. Uh, and I'm really interested to see where the Bitcoin connection is for this. So, yeah, I think uh, I think just a good starting point for anyone listening uh, who hasn't heard of the great filter? Let's uh, let's let's start by you just explaining what that is to people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I want to start actually a little bit before that and say that um, you know pe- people probably who are into Bitcoin may have heard me on some podcasts, and I usually have a fairly sunny disposition. But this is something I want to talk about because it's something that I'm really worried about, and um, I'm worried about our future. And I don't mean that in the sense I'm worried about you know, inflation or the response to COVID. I don't want to minimize those things. I think they're a big deal, but I'm worried about our species. I'm worried about the survival of our species. Um, and and to, to get into this topic, we'll sort of get to that, that question of why I'm worried about our species. The Fermi paradox is this idea that the universe is huge, absolutely massive, um, in our galaxy alone, there's somewhere between 100 billion and 400 billion stars. Um, and there are at least 100 billion galaxies. 
in the, the, observ- in, in, the in the yeah in the universe that we know about. So the universe is really really big, and these these numbers are too big for us to even think about. They're they're so massive that the regular we're not good at comprehending large numbers, but but the universe is massive, and there's this physicist Enrico Fermi who you know looked up at the stars and he wondered why do we not hear from other civilizations why do we see no sign there is no sign of intelligent life in this gigantic universe and this calls for an explanation um if you think about the size of the universe and you apply some rough numbers to it um and you think about like why isn't there other species like us who are capable of sending signals out that we can see um so if you think about the universe and you think there might be life out there uh, and if there's life out there, it probably developed in an environment similar to ours. Uh, so how many environments are there in our universe that are similar to ours? There's probably about 5 to 20% of the stars in the universe are similar to ours, similar size, similar luminosity. Um, and there are, of those stars... I think that makes about 100 billion billion stars that are similar to ours. And of those stars, physicists have estimated that there's somewhere between 20 and 50% of those stars have planets like ours orbiting them. And that makes a lot. That's a lot of planets like ours. So just in our galaxy alone, just in the Milky Way, there's at least a billion Earth-like planets and if you do like a very conservative estimate and say life is rare, but it's probably out there and you say there's only 1% of those planets have life. And then you say of those planets which have some kind of life, only 1% of those have intelligent life. You would still expect at least 100,000 advanced civilizations in our galaxy alone. That's a very large number. Uh, and our, our star is actually a very new star. It's uh, relatively new in its age. I think it's like something like 5 billion years old, maybe a little bit older than that. So you would imagine that of those 100,000 intelligent civilizations, some are probably or have been around a really, really long time. And if you imagine that civilization becomes advanced more quickly over time, they must be way, way more advanced than us. Like human civilizations only really existed for 7,000 years, about that, since the Sumerians. And the technological advances of the last 100 years alone. Yeah, the, exactly right. The advances in the last 10 years even have become so rapid that you would imagine that a civilization that's been around a billion years more than us would be so much more advanced and have so much more powerful technology and that we would see signs of them. They would have figured out how to colonize the galaxy they would have figured out how to communicate and let other civilizations know that they exist. But we or, don't or figure out how to hide. Or maybe, maybe they don't want to know about us. But it, it would be hard, I think, when you become that advanced to not let information leak out. Human civilization is clearly letting information leak out from the Earth. Um, we have signals being emitted from the Earth and from space that if there was another civilization, they would pick up on it. So it's a paradox. That's Fermi's paradox. The question of why do we not see signs of life uh, in the universe? 
And one of the proposed answers to this paradox is that maybe there's a great filter. Maybe there is a set of circumstances which make it incredibly improbable that advanced civilization comes about or that it gets to a stage where it becomes uh, spacefaring and can travel and can colonize. And what are those circumstances? What could they be? Are, are they in, in the future or are they in the past? Is it the case that once a civilization becomes advanced enough, it destroys itself? Or is it because the circumstances that you, you need for life to come about are so rare and so improbable um, that we, we're alone just because it's, it's so unlikely that there's a circumstance like the earth with our distance to the sun and, and you know, the, the, the chemical matter on earth that gave rise to life. There's just not possible for this to happen elsewhere. Uh, and th this is an interesting question because about a decade ago, or maybe it was two decades, they had the, the, the Mars rover and they were searching for life on Mars. And uh, there was all this excitement about whether there was life and, you know, what would be the implications. The implications of life on Mars actually would be very, very bad for us um, because what it would mean is that life did emerge on another planet and that if life emerges on another planet independent of the Earth, it probably means there's life everywhere. And the reason we don't see evidence for these advanced civilizations is that the great filter is ahead of us. And, and that is what I'm deeply worried about. I, I really believe there's a, we are in the history of humanity at the moment of maximum peril, the, the moment of maximum risk that we could destroy ourselves. Uh, so that, that's one vision of the future. There, there are two kind of visions of the future. One is the great filter and the other is the singularity. You may have heard of the singularity. It's kind of mm -hmm. popularized by um, Ray Kurzweil. And, and it's this idea that things are becoming better, faster and at an accelerating rate so that um, the time it takes for you to be completely amazed by what happens in the future is being compressed. So if you were someone who lived, say, 2,000 years ago, you could jump ahead 1,000 years into the future and you'd mostly recognize it. You, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I recognize the technologies that they have and the crafts that they have. Maybe the pottery has gotten a little better. Maybe the clothing and, you know, the stitching and things like that have become a little bit better. Um, but you would largely recognize it. But now, uh, if you went back, a hundred years and you took someone from a hundred years ago and brought them to today, they would be blown away. And actually you could probably go back 20 years. So the time frame in which someone could go into the future and be amazed by what, what, what's around is shrinking. And so the idea is that the future is going to be so amazing because we're going to get to a singularity where we have artificial intelligence and we have technologies which allow production without effort. So none of us will need to work. Um, we'll be able to produce energy with complete abundance. Uh, and this will allow for us to escape the earth and, and to colonize the galaxy. That's, that's the positive vision. Uh, but I think we need to think about the danger, which is the great filter. Uh, and, and, and I want to get into that a, a little bit with you. I mean, it's a great subject. Uh, I've 
previously covered covered it in part with Rob Reed. Remember, I had that uh, other podcast, Defiance, for a while. Uh, we covered that with him. He was primarily interested in CRISPR, which uh, scared the shit out of me, <laughs> quite frankly. Uh, and then recently, I did um, an interview with Austin Hill, where we covered the singularity and uh, the what, what did he call it? The um, vulnerable uh, vulnerable Earth hypothesis. Danny, what was it called? Yeah, the Vulnerable Earth Hypothesis. Yeah, Vulnerable Earth Hypothesis. And so we covered that with him. And sometimes, Vijay, I'm like thinking to myself, do we live in the best time or the worst time? Uh, sometimes I think we live in the best time because we are still here. We haven't destroyed ourselves. I can get in a flying chair and fly at 500 miles an hour and come here and see you and, and have a device here I can bring up and see my kids and talk to them and still be connected to them. Um, you know, we have the, this amazing technology that allows us to travel and live and have these great lives. And I know not everyone is fortunate enough for that. But I also, I'm like you, I'm concerned about things. I'm, I am actually concerned about money. I'm concerned about the buildup of troops at the Russian-Ukrainian uh, border. I'm concerned about Taiwan and China. I'm concerned about global tensions. I'm concerned about the advancement of technologies that might destroy this planet, not be a great place for my kids to grow up. We've had Essentially, you and I, we've had 43 years of relative stability. Now, relative. We came after World War II, so we didn't have to live through that horror. And we haven't really ever experienced much struggle. But, And I just, I don't know, maybe a Stockholm Syndrome, I felt like this is all going to be great. Everything's going to be fine and easy for us. For the first time in my life over this last two years, I, I share your concerns. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, we have lived in the best time in human history. I mean, our standard of living is better than the richest kings uh, of history. So, but it's easy to get complacent and to to think that the the future will look like the present. I think most people tend to default to thinking the future will look like the present, uh, but I don't think that's the case. Uh, and, and the reason I don't think it's the case is. I think we're getting closer and closer to developing asymmetric technologies. And I think human civilization is essentially defined by asymmetric technologies, technologies that give advantages to small groups uh, to either uh, use offensively or defensively. And human nature hasn't really changed uh, for at least 10,000 years. If you went back to um, you know, the earliest human civilizations, you would recognize those people, you'd recognize their needs and wants and the political dynamics that they have, very similar to today. Uh, but what's changed is the, the sort of scientific and technological circumstances of those ages. So, you know, going back in history, one asymmetric technology is the bow and arrow. You, you can do quite a lot of damage to people uh, at a distance, which gives you a big advantage if you're a if you're a kingdom and you want to conquer another kingdom and you have the bow and arrow, you have a huge, huge advantage. A defensive asymmetric technology is the castle. Uh, it gives the ability for a small number of people to protect themselves against a large number of people. And actually British history is really um, defined in a lot of ways by the castle. The Normans came to England and they were a small group of people relative to the population, but they were able to conquer England and hold England because they brought the castle to England from Europe. Bitcoin. Bitcoin is actually an asymmetric technology because it gives a lot of power to the individual to be able to hold wealth without 
anyone being able to take that wealth from them or even even knowing that they have that wealth. So that's an asymmetric technology. I'm really worried that we're getting close to developing asymmetric technologies that let individuals do a huge amount of damage to societies. Uh, and and I, I like to think of a, th a thought experiment. What would our world look like if you could develop nuclear weapons with household items that you could buy at the grocery store? I mean, it's not possible today, but what, what would the world look like? We, we would be... Yeah, you need one psychopath. Yeah, exactly right. One psychopath and then human civilization is over. And, and that's part of my concern is that all human civilizations have a distribution of social dispositions. And there's only a small number of people who are psychopaths or um, pathological and want to harm people just for the sake of harming people. And during most of history, they didn't have the ability to harm that many people, although that ability has been increasing rapidly over time, right? So you, talk, you think about mass shootings in the United States. It's possible for someone to get uh, an automatic weapon and find it find a good spot, find an easy target with a lot of people and kill 50 people. Uh, From a hotel vantage point down at a festival. Yeah, exactly right. Yep. So it, is, it would have been much more difficult to do that with a bow and arrow or to do it with a sword. Uh, and we're getting to the point now where the ability for an individual to do asymmetric d damage is the greatest it's ever been in history. An individual can't get a nuclear weapon. Nuclear weapons are the, the scariest thing that we have on Earth. And when they were first developed, people were really uh, afraid. Like if you go back and look at videos from the 60s, they were terrified about the world ending. But it turns out that nuclear weapons are very hard to develop and they're controlled by nation states. Only nation states really have the capacity to build nuclear weapons because of the cost. And when you have an organization which controls it, it's much less likely that you're going to have someone who's at the extremes of the social spectrum. There might be, you know, some people, but you're going to have a group of people around them who say, if that person's going to drop a nuke, we're going to kill that person. Um, which is, you know, why they have, if you want to launch a nuke, you need two people to turn the key. You, you don't have a single person doing it. But now we have technologies being developed like drones, uh, where you can buy drones off the shelf for a couple hundred dollars, which can deliver... Uh, munitions and you could imagine quite conceivably someone developing a swarm of drones say 100 drones each with a bomb attached to it and flying it into some area I'm deeply concerned not just by the fact that that's possible now and and that it's being developed not not just um, uh, that it's been developed by the military, but it's also being thought about by people who are terrorists. There's no doubt that there are terrorists out there thinking about this as a way of disrupting societies. Well, you've seen the drone light shows. Mm -hmm. you know, With some swarms. Yeah, swarms. You get 100 drones or 200 drones. They're all coordinated to run specific patterns to create displays. Yep. It's not a big stretch to see how that could be used for nefarious purposes. Exactly. I mean, that this is. I'm giving one example. Yeah. The development of viruses, for instance, COVID is an example where it seems likely this was developed by humans. If it became possible that, you know, you, with a small group of people, you could uh, in, increase the potency of some virus and let it loose into the population. 
what I'm worried about more is the effect that that has on civilization. If you go back to 9-11 and think about what was the effect of 3,000-ish people dying, it, it profoundly transformed U.S. society. What What is the effect when uh, a small group of terrorists launches a drone attack on a country like the United States? The impact it has is that people feel a deep sense of dread and when they feel that dread that it's possible that they could be harmed, it it paves the way for authoritarianism. It paves the way for the most oppressive kind of surveillance societies where people will tolerate every aspect of their life life being observed uh, and, and controlled. For safety. For safety. So this is something that I've been thinking about for, you know, at least a decade. Uh, the, the, the concept of what happens when we have... Uh, the ability to destroy each other um, and and it's it's cheap and easily available uh, and this thought experiment of a nuclear weapon being cheaply available has really troubled me for a long time because I thought we'd get there I thought we'd get to something like that and I think we're very very close uh, so I think we are at the point of maximum danger for our species that we could destroy ourselves and then we will tolerate something that will make it impossible for us to leave the earth. I don't think we can get to a point of our civilization where we can escape unless we have a, a, a major flourishing of civilization, uh, a, a complete change in the ability for us to accumulate capital and, and become wealthy. I don't think we'll be able to leave the planet. There are very few people thinking about that, thinking about... Uh, the, the species level su survival. Most people are thinking about their day-to-day -day concerns. There are a few, you know, counterexamples like Elon Musk, uh -huh. um, but he's very rare. There aren't many people saying we need to be a multi-planetary species. Um, well, after my Austin Hill interview, uh, discussing the singularity and very similar topics, I had a long conversation with my brother. Uh, my brother now works with me. He works with us on the team does a lot of research uh, researching for shows we want to do topics to cover and him and I spent quite a long time discussing the solution to these you know how do you stop uh, these technologies getting in the hands of a psychopath who maybe will want to kill thousands tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people and you know researching other people who've been through thought experiments looking at this and the really difficult place we kept coming to which I didn't want to come to and I'm trying to fight against, especially being a Bitcoiner and caring about decentralization is that the defense against a number of these technologies or what appears to be one of the best defenses against these technologies is the nation state, is centralized regulation around these technologies. Because without some form of regulation, you don't know who's going to get their hands on these technologies. And every single, and I know people listening won't like this, every single path we went to went down trying to figure it out we kept coming back to regulation nation state or international institutions that regulate these technologies we could find another way we could just couldn't do it and i'm and that that would concern a bitcoiner because bitcoiners a lot of them i'm not one of those i am a uh, reluctant statist but many bitcoiners want to see the end of the nation state they see all its ills and i see them too and I don't think a lot of people would ever accept the idea that the nation state is the solution to this.
Yeah, I don't want the nation state to be the solution because mm -hmm. I'm a libertarian and I, I want human freedom. I think we have the greatest flourishing under human freedom. But I think it is really important to think about the risks as well mm -hmm. of um, absolute human freedom. And another thought experiment I like to have thought about in the past is, is what would the world look like if every human could be completely anonymous or completely, completely invisible for, uh, you know, two hours a day? That would give us a lot more freedom. We could escape government in a lot of different ways and the state would have a lot less power. But then again, you have people at the extremes of the social spectrum who could do so much more damage. If you could become invisible, you could walk around and kill a bunch of people and no one would ever know. And the vast majority of us, that would never occur to us. But there is a small part of the, the human distribution where they don't care. They don't care about other people. They're lacking that compassion and empathy and and they are they've always been dangerous but their ability to harm other people has always been limited um so how as a libertarian do you wrestle with that idea of absolute freedom and the risks that come with it i that's a great question i think of human freedom as an ideal uh but i don't i'm not an absolutist okay because i i think it's really important to always look at every side of a picture and what the consequences are. So I'm willing to acknowledge that there are, there are extreme dangers to a completely free society. Uh, and, and some people are, you know, willing to tolerate that and say that, you know, human freedom is an ideal that's worth having, even if it means really bad consequences. I'm, I'm not quite so sure of that. Uh, what I would love is to see humanity survive and to be able to answer the big questions like why are we here? Uh, what is our significance in the, the universe? We'll never be able to answer these questions if we wipe ourselves out. And, and becoming multiplanetary is a first step, but we really need to be, you know, uh, multi-solar system. We need to eventually colonize the galaxy, but we'll, we'll never be able to do that unless we really move out thinking into the future. We are so present oriented. We, we're so focused on what our concerns are today. We can, we're concerned about inflation. We're concerned about COVID. These are really in, in the scheme of history are very, very minor matters. Uh, and I am deeply concerned that our institutions are not going to allow this to happen. There may be exceptions in individuals who are brilliant like Musk, who are like, this is important and someone needs to think about it. I'm going to put my resources towards making this happen. But I don't think that as a species, we'll be able to escape the dangers of our earth and development of technology if it's just one person. We need to rewrite our institutions. We, we need so much advancement. Um, I actually, if, uh, a couple of years ago, I got to speak to um, the chancellor of my alma mater. His name's Brian Schmidt. He's a Nobel Prize winner in um, astrophysics. And I asked him a question that has been on my mind since I was a kid. Are we ever going to reach the stars? Uh, and and he, he, he said he didn't have an answer for that, but he said to just get a camera just a tiny little camera to the nearest star so we could take a picture and send it back. The cost would be so astronomical. It's kind of a pun intended. Mm. It'd be so astronomical that it's probably not going to happen, at least for a long time. 
we need our civilization to be so much more advanced to even dream about doing something like that. And that means so much more capital accumulation. It means so much uh, more development of energy so that each individual has, you know, the power of a million individuals today. We are so far from that. Uh, and, and so that's why I think we need to talk about our institutions and, and the failure of our institutions and how we might improve them. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, <laughs> firstly, we went over 39,000. Exciting. Well, let's see if we get that's, that's one step in the right direction. <laughs> well, <laughs> but that is one of those interesting points is you said we're very much in the present and we are. We're very much in the present, very much about today, but, but not always. And that is that is a definite Bitcoin shift that happens to you because you have to change your thinking. Your time preference changes. You think about money differently. So I, I was the worst example of somebody who used to live in the day, live today, but now I live a little bit more in tomorrow. What, what do I want to happen tomorrow? What do I want to happen in the future? You know, and I plan around that because of Bitcoin. It's just that shift that, that comes. But I, I do want to just unpack a little bit more about this absolute freedom idea because... This is where, on my personal experience as a Bitcoiner uh, from Europe, not from the US, uh, a society that is a little bit more socially cohesive than, say, the US. We're a little bit more on the socialist side, whereas the US is a little bit more on the freedom side. Comes with its drawbacks I talked to you about last night. And we don't have First Amendment protection, which I'm jealous of. I've talked about it a lot on this podcast. We don't have Second Amendment, which I'm not too worried about. I, I am happy to live in a society that isn't uh, uh, played with guns and the, the issues with that. So can I just say that yeah. what the American response to that would be, we wouldn't have the First Amendment if we didn't have the Second. But anyway, yeah. keep, keep going. And, and, and the other thing they tend to say to me is, isn't there a plague of stabbings in London you deserve to be able to protect yourself? And like, yeah, I understand that argument, but really that is gang crime uh, predominantly and the number of murders that happen in the UK is so, so low that it doesn't feel like it's the risk uh, that I have to worry about. And I can debate this forever, but we formed a society in the UK that doesn't want to have uh, guns as a part of it. And I'm happy with that. It's a bit, it's like the NHS or health service discussion. Our health services are not advanced as the US. You will, it's, it's a regular thing through, Danny will know this, is through your uh, child, childhood or life that you'll see campaigns online. A, a young child has got cancer and they're fundraising to go and get treated in the US because cancer treatment is better here, it's more advanced. But the trade-off is, is you can break your leg here or get knocked down by a car and have your entire finances wiped out and be in, be in debt for the rest of your life. I, I know people, I've met people who in the US have had their lives destroyed by financial bills. We have the other side where everybody, it doesn't matter who you are, if you have a heart attack, you get, have your leg broken, you will get seen to. There are these, these trade-offs. Um, and... I am pro-democracy, wanting it to be stronger. But the libertarian argument is really interesting. Our mutual friend Stefan Levera is always ha hammering it to me. I wish libertarians would engage more in politics to make democracy better because I believe that if libertarians engage more in politics, we would have that push on the state not to be so big, to be smaller, to, to, be, to, to promote ideas that give more freedom but within the construct of not having that total freedom which comes with its risks. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, you know, I may say something controversial here. I think one of the big problems is democracy. 
I think it's, you know, I want to talk a little bit about how we can improve our institutions, economic institutions. We can talk about Bitcoin, political institutions, democracy and scientific institutions. But uh, democracy, I believe, is one of the core problems with why we are not future oriented. And I think democracy in the long term leads to anarchy and leads to uh, the, the dissolution of society. I'm, I'm a big um, skeptic of democracy. And one of the things that I think is a huge problem for human society is that uh, people don't even understand that it's a problem. I think a lot of people, when you talk about different political institutions, they might be able to tell you the problems with them. Like if you ask the average person on the street, why is monarchy worse than democracy? They'd probably be able to give you, you know, a fairly coherent answer for why they don't think monarchy is a good idea. Safe, safe would disagree with you. Safe, I mean, there's very few exceptions, but safe would, safe would disagree. But I don't think most people think about the flaws of democracy. And I think democracy as a political institution is deeply flawed. And I think it encourages short-termism. It, it encourages a renter mentality instead of an owner mentality. Uh, and it, it inevitably leads to control from external groups. Most people have this kind of naive understanding of the political system and democracy that they learned in a civics class that, you know, the voters control politics and they vote and they choose the leaders and then the leaders do what the voters want. That's not at all what happens in a democracy. Democracy is shaped by public opinion because people who get into power are catering towards public opinion. To get elected, you have to serve public opinion. But how does public opinion get formed? Are people out there independently thinking about issues and figuring it out? No, they're not. They're, they're being manipulated into believing things uh, and they're being manipulated by the press. So really what we have is a system that's controlled by the media and, and the media is you know, largely controlled by the ideolo ideologies that come out of universities. Most of the people in the media have their belief system shaped by the university that they went to. And the media shapes public opinion. They largely decide what people think about certain issues. COVID's a perfect example of this where uh, the media shaped the narrative of what we should think about COVID. Should we have lockdowns? Is the lab leak theory true or not? These weren't open discussions where we said, we don't know, we need to be humble, we need to figure this out, this is a new thing, we haven't seen a pandemic like this for 100 years, let's have an open mind and figure this out. It was shaped from very early on by media narratives that came from inbuilt power structures within the state. Uh, and this is another problem with democracy is this, this idea that we elect leaders, they're in charge and they make decisions. Really what happens over time is that you get this large bureaucracy that's created, the permanent state. Uh, and the permanent state is doing, uh, is doing essentially the bidding of the media narrative. They are sort of acting independently of voters. So you have a thin veneer of elected officials, say 5% of the government as we understand it is elected. And then you have these huge bureaucracies like um, uh, the FBI and the Federal Reserve and the EPA. And, and these represent the vast majority of the government. 
And really what happens in, in public policy creation is that policies come up from these bureaus into policymakers' hands and they advocate for it. So most people in Congress don't know anything about monetary policy. Uh, they don't really know much about law enforcement. They trust what these bureaucracies tell them. And the problem is these bureaucracies become completely unaccountable. There's no, no one who really has oversight over them. We think there's oversight because we elect people into Congress and they oversee what's happening, these bureaucracies, but that's not what happens. The bureaucracies tell the elected officials how things should go. And this is actually very different to a monarchy, uh, a political system like monarchy, where you have someone who's in charge and they essentially own the system and they become the, the form of account because they say, well, this is how I want my country to go uh, and I own all of these bureaucracies, they answer to me and if they don't do what I want, they're gone. We don't have that. We have a system where people who, are, who control the government are essentially completely unaccountable. Uh, they do whatever they want. They're not future-oriented. They're not thinking about the future of the, our species. They're thinking about... The next election. Well, the, the people in the bureaucracy are just thinking about increasing their own power. The, the elected officials who are supposed to be holding them to account and making sure those people in the bureaucracy, bureaucracy are doing the right thing, they are only thinking about the next election. Do, do you think that's universally true, that every person just wants more power? Because I, I, I understand the argument, but I, I do believe there are people with honest intentions within government who want to deliver for their constituents, who want to do a good good job. Uh, they're, they're far and few between, but Rand Paul, I, I would say somebody is somebody who wants to de deliver for the people and he will challenge the institutions. I don't look at him as somebody who wants to gain more power. They are few and far between, but what happens is when they get into the political process, over time their principles get shredded. Because the is it the game theory of the machine? It's the machine. The yeah. machine shreds principles because if you don't shift your principles, if you don't uh, do what will avail you to be successful, you're gone. And so it's this strong incentive. This is a question that Friedrich Hayek, a Nobel Prize winner in economics, tried to tackle and he, he tried to answer, why do the worst get on top in politics? Well, there's a reason, there's a political incentive to have no principles. Uh, if you're someone who has principles who won't budge on those principles and won't deliver what's popular to the public, then you're gone. And there are, there are very few counterexamples to this. Ron Paul is a, a counterexample of someone who held to his principles, but he was a congressman in a fairly small district in Texas, uh, and, and he, was, he was able to maintain his seat for a long time. You couldn't do that as president. You couldn't do it as senator. You couldn't be that principled. Um, and an example, a recent example of this is uh, Kirsten Sinema, she, she, uh, Arizona, Arizona, that's yeah. right. She's a senator, a democratic senator for, for Arizona, and she said that we shouldn't get rid of the filibuster in the Senate because it'll have dire consequences for the future of this institution, the Senate, as a deliberative body, and it will cause more polarization in our society. Can you explain what the filibuster is? The filibuster is the way for a minority party in the center to hold up legislation that they don't like. The, the Senate in the US was created as a compromise so that the smaller states would join the union. Because they said, if this is like a you know 
majority vote kind of system, which the House is, it's a majority vote, um, then we have no say and we don't want to join the union. Why would we join the union? But the Senate was created so that each state, no matter how small, has the same number of votes as every other state. So Wyoming, which has very few people, has as much voting power in the Senate as California. And, and so objectors to this say, well, that means the minority can hold up the majority's view or the majority wants to pass some legislation so the mi minority can block it. And that's certainly true, but that has very positive effects in that you don't get minority rights trampled. You don't get ca the Californias of the world stomping on the interests of Wyoming. Because what would happen is that Wyoming would just say, why are we in the union? Nothing that we want as a state is being represented. So anyway, Kirsten Cinema said we shouldn't get rid of the filibuster, which protects those minority state rights. And the Democratic Party, a lot of, you know, uh, powerful forces within the de Democratic Party said we need to get rid of her. Uh, and a number of the people who backed her said, we're not going to fund you in the next election. We're going to run a candidate against you. We're going to get rid of you. This is just a small example of what happens in the machine. You don't get in line for what you should do and you'll be booted out. It's a system which shreds principles, has very little accountability and is easily manipulable by the media. It has these huge, huge problems. Uh, and it, it, overall, my worry is that it makes us so much more present oriented. We don't have any form of leadership who can look to the future and say, I'm the leader and I'm going to be the leader for a long time. So I'm going to start thinking about the future. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Compass Mining and Compass aren't just a sponsor. I'm a customer of theirs and I am mining Bitcoin with them. Do you know what? I've been mining for over three months with them now. I've mined about 0.4 Bitcoin, which is pretty cool. I'm going to try and do updates on this every month. But with the price of where Bitcoin is, I'm approaching having, I think about a third of my mining equipment paid off. I love that I'm mining again because Compass has made it accessible to anyone as a Bitcoiner to get out there and start mining and contribute to the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded and anyone can do it. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility and Compass does everything else for you. Now, if you want to find out more, if you want to start mining, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up today, we have Gemini, who I am now using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And do you know what? We're coming up to a year and I've still not sold a single sat through Gemini. I am only buying Bitcoin. I am a hodler. That's all I'm doing. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please do head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have my new sponsor to the show, which is Level, a company finally delivering on the promise of a Bitcoin bank. 
Yes, a bank on your phone where you can deposit, spend, and hold Bitcoin. And you can also do this alongside a traditional dollar checking account. You can deposit your payroll into your account as a US user, and you can even spend your Bitcoin from your account via your MasterCard debit card. I have been testing it out. I've been playing with the app, and it is everything I've ever wanted from personal banking. And there's so many more updates coming. They've got some big updates coming in February, so keep an eye out for that. Now, if you do want to find out more, if you want to go and check it out, please head over to Level, which is lvl.co, or search for Level, which is LVL, in the Google or Apple app stores. Also, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now we are well into the football season and you know what? Things are going all right. It's been a pretty good season so far for Liverpool. Tottenham struggling as ever. We always like it that way. Now, if you are interested in football, if you do want to make a bet and if you want to use your Bitcoin, then sportsbet.io is the place to go. But they don't just cover football. They also cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Now, this kind of sounds scary to most people. They hear what I'm saying and they might say, well, is he saying we should have a dictator of the United States? Not exactly. Not exactly. But I do think monarchies have a lot of advantages. And I think that if you look at the moments in human history where we had the greatest flourishing of civilization, it was in these environments where you had monarchies that were much smaller and were competing against each other. So you think of the um, the, the city-states in Italy during the Renaissance. That was an incredible flourishing of civilization. Uh, and it was largely because you had strong executive leadership in these political bodies that could think about the future and could attract talent. These city-states would say, how do we get the best people in Europe to come here? What policies do we run to get the best artists, the best scientists, the best philosophers here into our country uh, and we, we don't have that now. So I think we need a, a sort of a radical reformation in our political structures if we're ever going to es- escape the earth. One of these political, sorry, not political structures, but economic structures which needs reformation is money. Well, it's a big, that was big piece gonna, of it. That was my next question is that can, can Bitcoin fix the political structures? We, we're seeing now the game theory play out politically in the US and globally to some extent. Um, we've seen El Salvador make Bitcoin legal tender. Uh, there was a French politician, I can't remember his name, is it Philippe? So I can't remember his name, but he was saying that uh, Canada should adopt Bitcoin and put $10 billion worth in, in their you know, coffers and you know, protect their future uh, uh, fin- uh, to underpin their financial strength for the future. But we're also seeing it play out in the US. We, we may have Senator Warren very much against Bitcoin and spouting bullshit about uh, mining and you know, potentially regulation coming down from the federal government. But at the same time, we've heard this week that Arizona wanted to put in a bill to make Bitcoin legal tender. Texas is very much a Bitcoin state. Wyoming is very much a more of a crypto state, but still very much Bitcoin. Um, we've seen Governor Abbott very much pro-Bitcoin, talks of Bitcoin stabilizing the grid in Texas. Uh, and then we've seen a lot of new people coming in who want to campaign for the Senate, campaign for Congress, who are pro-Bitcoin, and they get the hack. They get the hack whereby 
they suddenly get 10,000, 20,000 new followers who are Bitcoiners, who support them, who may donate towards them. Is there a chance that the Bitcoin, as part of the political process, fixes some of the problems within that political structure? I think Bitcoin uh, can help with the, the present orientedness of our society. And you've seen this in yourself, and I've seen it in a lot of people, the transformation of a person when they start saving in Bitcoin and realizing this is something that can't be debased. I get to keep it. No one can take it away from, from me. And that's something that most people haven't experienced in a very long time. Uh, you know, but, but maybe a century ago with the gold standard, people had that same feeling. And, and the transformation is that people start thinking about the future. They think, well, there's a finite number of these Bitcoins and I want to have as big a pie as possible. So I need to squirrel away as many Bitcoins as I can as quickly as possible. And so they take, a, uh, they, they take from the consumption in the present and, and they, they transform it to savings, which is a future-oriented activity where you're accumulating savings because you can use those savings in the future. So I think Bitcoin is definitely helpful in that regard. But I don't think that Bitcoin in the long term, if it succeeds, can coexist with our current institutions. That's something that's perhaps a little controversial. I think, right? Not, not so, not so controversial in Bitcoin land. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe so. But I think a lot of people, like even people who are fairly um, influential in the Bitcoin space, like Michael Saylor, who I'm a big fan of, think of Bitcoin as kind of outside the dollar system, and it can it can exist as this external store of value but i think if bitcoin was successful and became a, a, you know a global reserve currency it would transform political institutions but michael saylor is in a very different position sure um and i'm never 100% sure if his views are definitely 100% authentically his views or he's playing his own game theory out uh trying to protect bitcoin in the short term from attacks from institutions from the government he might be playing his own game there i'm never 100 percent sure with him uh, you could be right you could be right but i think there is the view that bitcoin can coexist with the current system i think amongst politicians who are pro bitcoin i don't think many of them are like this is going to end u.s democracy I, I don't think if you asked say senator lummis that it, it could transform society in a way that we don't have the same society and the same political structures. I am skeptical with Bitcoin success that our current political structures will exist. And there's um, there's a there's a quote from The Economist from many years ago. I actually brought it and I hope you, you'll um, forgive me for reading this quote, which I think was incredibly important and insightful. And I, I'm not a fan of The Economist at all. It's... Uh, it, it, it's a mouthpiece for the status quo and, you know, I never f forgave them after the Iraq war uh -huh. and um, their, their, their advocacy for what was a, a catastrophe, a global catastrophe that destroyed an entire region and, and wasted so many lives and so much money. Uh, they're a mouthpiece for that, but occasionally they say something very insightful and this is something that I, I, I want to read uh, to you. Britain adopted the gold standard in 1689, which was to last, in peacetime at least, for much of the next two centuries. Over the long run, prices were remarkably stable during this period. Over the short run, however, the discipline required by this standard required some short, sharp slumps, which imposed considerable, considerable pain on the working classes. The advent of universal suffrage after the First World War 
made it impossible for democratically elected governments to impose such costs on their voters. Commodity money disappeared and fiat money, i.e. money that was, that is what government declares it to be, became the norm. I, I think that is unintentionally incredibly insightful. What they, what they are saying is that the gold standard could not survive in a democratic society because the pain, the short-term pain that came from the slumps could not be uh, handled by people in power. The, the, the strong incentive in a democracy is to do what's popular and to do what is popular is to avoid short-term pain. It's kind of like the heroin addict. This is what Giacomo Zucco talks about. Yeah, it's much easier to just give the, the heroin addict another hit of heroin because they, you know, if your power as a drug dealer comes from the, that person using heroin, you're just going to dish out the heroin over and over again. You're not going to say, this is really bad for you. Eventually you're going to die. You're going to need to suffer some pain, get through this, and we'll be better off together after that. Democracy doesn't have that. Democracy the incentive is to say, we have a recession, what are we going to do? We're going to, re we're going to reduce interest rates. We're going to print trillions of dollars so that people don't feel pain. Uh, feeling pain is one of the most important aspects of being future-oriented because you have to put away what is pleasurable in the present for what is beneficial in the future, and we do not have that. Well, this case takes us back to parenting. You have to let your children experience pain in different ways. You have to ex let them experience failure. This is why partici participation trophies are bullshit. And uh, we had it with my son when he first started playing football. I remember the first football tournament he played in, no team was allowed to win. And I was like, this is fucking dumb. Right. We have to let people experience pain. You can take it through every level. It's, it's the, one of the biggest problems with the economy is that no government now wants to allow people to feel economic pain unless it's a covid crisis which they've let every small business suffer economic pain but generally speaking they are always trying to avoid uh the bus period of the boomer bus cycle we've tried to eliminate pain from society in every level and it's been a complete and utter failure yeah absolutely the the example of parenting i think is really important because i noticed that tendency in myself it's very hard to see my kids suffering in any way. And so there's this strong internal bias to intervene, but there's a long-term consequence. And that's what we have at the level of societies and nation states. We have this kind of nanny state mentality that everyone needs to be protected from themselves. And um, this group of elites who know what's best for everyone needs to intervene and protect us from our own stupidity and protect us from the pain of our own stupidity. And, and this is why sort of getting, going back a few steps, I don't think uh, Bitcoin can coexist with democratic governments. I think the gold standard didn't exist. The gold standard was removed by governments because they couldn't handle the pain. Democratic governments couldn't handle the pain of the slump that was caused. You know, one of the, the, the narratives that's given by economists today is that the gold standard failed and because it failed, we have government money. Now, what happened was that governments... Government failed. Government failed. There was a massive amount of spending during World War One, and governments couldn't pay down those debts because those nations which overspent during World War One were completely bankrupt. Their societies were destroyed. Their countries were destroyed. 
And what was the easy way to get out of that? Well, get rid of the gold standard and start printing money, which is why you got the hyperinflation in the Weimar Republic. Mm-hmm. So the thing is the gold standard wasn't that difficult to remove because gold has this problem of centralization. It's difficult to store. It's hard to assay. People don't generally, it's it's dangerous to store it and costly to store it. So people give it to banks. And so governments had a very you know, juicy target when they wanted to get rid of the gold standard. This is one of the huge advantages of Bitcoin is that it's much more resilient to government attack. So if Bitcoin was to, was to succeed, I think it would be much harder for governments to, to then attack it because of its decentralized nature. So what happens when you have governments which can't handle uh, the political pain of a hard money standard and you have a hard money standard that can't be removed? Something has got to give. And I think what's going to give is uh, our political institutions. I think they're going to be replaced. Uh, and I think they're going to be replaced with, with something that I think is superior, which is I hope a, a bunch of... And I think we could imagine this society. It doesn't have to be scary. It could be just a bunch of competing city-states. So instead of having the United States, we have Los Angeles is its own nation-state. Seattle is its own nation-state. And they compete with each other to try and attract the best talent. And I moved to the city where I feel like my values are best represented. And this is really kind of the vision that the the founders had for America in the beginning, not at the city-state level, but at the level of states. This is what Balaji talks about quite a bit. Yeah. And and we've seen part of this play out during COVID with the mass migration of people out of California, maybe to Texas, Wyoming, a mass migration of people out of New York down to Miami. We're seeing the early parts of this play out, but I just wanted to go back a step because what you were talking about with regards to the gold standard and you know, essentially prefacing a, a Bitcoin standard, this was m- probably my biggest light bulb moment with Bitcoin is when I realized that I was personally on a Bitcoin standard uh, because I was holding the majority of my company, uh, company treasury in Bitcoin and my personal wealth in Bitcoin. And I realized I'm on a Bitcoin standard and nobody can take me off that. And perhaps you, VJ, you're on a Bitcoin standard and we can trade with each other or work together, cooperate on that Bitcoin standard. And then perhaps Danny and, and this kind of spread of people putting themselves on a Bitcoin standard that can't be stopped. And that to me was like a massive light bulb moment is that you can optionally choose to live on a Bitcoin standard and your cohort of people you can exist with on that is growing and growing and growing. And it becomes that unstoppable beast. Yeah, and if it is unstoppable, how does the the nation state as it exists today continue to exist? The nation state today is fed through inflation. It's funded through inflation. And if we have this growing body of people who have their savings in something that can't be inflated away, something has to structurally change. The nation state can't continue the way it's continuing. One of the big problems with the US as well, you're talking about the migration of people from New York to Florida, is that in the early days, the founders of the nation envisage a lot of the power that wasn't enumerated and given specifically to the federal government would be reserved for the states and the people. The problem is the federal government has grown and grown and grown so that the vast majority of political power in the country is now concentrated not in the individual states, it's concentrated in the federal government. And so so what happens is there's no way to escape it. There's Whether you go to uh, Florida or you go to Seattle, you're going to 
be subject to the same federal laws and that the total number of federal laws has become so large and so onerous and the tax burden of the federal system has become so large and onerous that you're essentially, your life is governed more by the federal government than the local government. Of course, you can get some differences when you move state and some of them are nice. Like I'm not allowed to, we're not allowed to have plastic bags in Seattle, for instance, whereas you go to- Those fucking plastic bags. <laughs> you go to Texas or Florida, you can get plastic bags, but that's a small issue, right? So the what about straws? You allow straws, plastic straws? Oh, I don't think we allow plastic straws anymore. You get the ones which kind of melt in your mouth while you're drinking and <laughs> you get halfway down your drink and you're, you're eating your straw. It's not pleasant. <laughs> so issues like that, yeah, you can get some benefit by moving, but the big issues you can't, you can't escape. Uh, and that's part of, I think, one of the big reasons why American society is becoming so polarized is that there is so much more power in the central government that each side that has different views on what the federal government should do, they get in power and they use the federal government as a weapon against their enemies. The issue of states' rights is something I'm seeing debated a lot more now. Uh, and it, it, probably more from the Republican states. Um, there's obviously a big push for Texas where plenty of people right now want the state to secede. So are we seeing the early stages of the potential breakup of the United States? Is that something you're seeing potentially happen? Yeah, I definitely think we're on that road. And I think the risk of a civil war in America is increasing dramatically. I think that we, we already saw the early stages of a civil war during the Trump administration when you saw federal troops uh, in Portland who were kind of fighting against the local authorities who are much more left-wing. That's what you might call the kind of cold civil war. It hasn't sort of burst out into armies fight marching against each other. But the United States is becoming more and more balkanized and uh, the potential for a civil war has in increased by at least an order of magnitude, I would say, in the, in the last decade. Do you see it as a potential violent civil war or, or a continuation of a more cold civil war? more kind of economic and political civil war? Uh, you know, it's hard to see how it will play out. Um, I, I think there's a potential for a hot civil war, for sure. If, if, you had a, if you had a state secede and you had the federal government say, we're not going to let you secede, then it could become a hot civil war. Uh, but, you know, barring that, I, I see that this cold civil war is going to become more and more intense over time. And that's, I think, very strongly related to the fact that the federal government has arrogated so much power to itself that what you do if you have a different opinion is get hold of that power structure and then use it against your enemies. Uh, when the power structure itself is very weak and, and doesn't have much say over the states, people don't care as much, right? Because if the federal government can't impose its will on you when you have different values, you don't care so much about it. What you care about is what's happening in your state and what the governor of your state is deciding. We've, uh, we've essentially had the first step of that in in Europe in the with Brexit essentially the UK seceded from right the EU it's not the same scenario as uh, the US because we are, were still a sovereign nation and uh, the union in the EU is slight obviously there's fundamental differences but that was the first step and we don't know yet the long-term benefits to the UK I expect them to be high as long as the government in power uh, takes advantage of their position I mean one of those is they have the advantage of uh, first, not first mover, but they have advantage of taking the lead in terms of, say, 
I'm going to say crypto, but really Bitcoin. But I, we know they will be crypto laws, not Bitcoin laws. Uh, and Matt Hancock recently stood up in Parliament and, and, and said about this. Uh, it's an, uh, we have a unique position in the UK. And I'm wondering, when do we get to that point in the US? It, when I go to, I love it here, by the way, in LA. I, I, I love California. Uh, but it's a very different experience when you go to Texas. It, it does feel like in some ways you're going into a different country mm-hmm. from here and, and New York. Uh, I like the idea of Texas seceding. I, I like the idea of seeing how that plays out. I, I, you know, Where you have your concerns, I have concerns of violence and what that will mean. Is this something you're pro? I, I guess as a libertarian, the idea of a smaller and smaller state you support, so you would want that to happen. I would like it to happen without the violence, but what I really want to happen is that our our political structures become much more dynamic and forward, future-oriented, and I think the way to get there is to try and get to a political structure which has smaller states, smaller city-states which compete with each other. Competition is an incredible uh, driver for the betterment of humanity. When political structures compete against each other, people benefit. What is, the, what is the governance structure of those uh, city-states that you're talking about? Is it, still, is, it, is it still democracy but at a smaller level? No, I think it would be much better if they were run essentially like corporations. Okay. And corporations are monarchies. A corporation is, uh, is, is a, a, a body that's led by a leader, the CEO, uh, who's still accountable though. The CEO is accountable to the shareholders and accountable to the board so they can't do whatever they want, uh, so bad CEOs can be removed. But the, the important thing about having a CEO is that they have the executive function. They can make decisions in an executive way. And part of the reason America, I think, has managed to be successful, despite what I think are the deep flaws of democracy, is there's a lot of power in these mini monarchies, in corporations, there's a lot of economic power held by people who have that executive ability and, and who can say, I want the resources of my kingdom to be deployed in this way. Imagine if these corporations weren't run by CEOs but were run democratically. We wouldn't have the iPhone. We wouldn't have the Tesla. We wouldn't live in the state of prosperity that we live in. Uh, you can't create wealth by committee. You need an executive function. You need someone who can decide the allocation of capital and who can think into the future and say, how do I allocate capital in the present so that I benefit, my constituents benefit in the future? And you probably understand some of this intuitively because you own your own company and you make decisions about the future. Um, well, I consider my companies dictatorships. <laughs> they are. But, they, uh, they actually are. But I have to keep my constituents happy otherwise they will quit and go and work somewhere absolutely. else. So absolutely. There's a balance. Absolutely right. And that's one of the biggest misconceptions about monarchy is that um, kings can get away with anything and uh, they're, they're tyrants and they they rule over their people. Really their people are their constituents and if they don't cater towards those constituents, they're Revolution. Out. Revolution. and Cut the th- their heads off. Exactly right. One of the things which is great about monarchy is that when there is a problem in the leader, it's not a systemic problem to the society. It's in that person and that person has one head and that head can be lopped off. And there are many examples in history when a bad monarch was removed. The problem I see with democracy is that it's systemic. It infects all of society and it 
it, it, it's a it's like a poison that can't be removed because it's all over your body. Uh, so I would like us to move to city states competing with each other. And there are some governments which are kind of thinking about this. They're thinking about charter cities where they say, well, we'll create a city and it's going to be run by a business. It's going to be run like a business. And it's going to think of the best policies for the people in that city. And El Salvador is kind of thinking about this a little bit with Bitcoin City and, you know, the, the Bitcoin bond. Um, but I think if you look at the cities in recent history, which have flourished the most, places like Dubai, which was just empty desert, you know, 40 years ago, or Singapore, which was, uh, Singapore is nominally a democracy, but it's actually a monarchy. Um, it's really quite authoritarian as well. It, it, it is. It is quite authoritarian, yep. So, And there are downsides. We, we can talk about the downsides to that. But Singapore was a swamp 50 years ago. Uh -huh. It is one of the most prosperous nations on earth. And, and there's an episode, a funny episode with Anthony Bourdain, who's, who was um, very, very left-wing, and he went there and he said, you know, this is weird. I kind of like this place. It's clean. It runs well. People are prosperous. But I also feel uncomfortable that I like it because it, it goes against my values. Uh, so this is one of the things that's going to be very difficult for people in the current world to grapple with in our democratic world. Uh, it feels uncomfortable to vest that much power in um, in a in a executive and to say they get to decide everything and maybe they decide things that make me feel very uncomfortable well there's parts of there's parts of parts of the way china's run which are you know highly successful right arguably successful even though it is almost the worst form of authoritarianism out there yeah authoritarianism is a risk of a monarchy but monarchies are slightly i would distinguish them a little bit from dictatorships in, in the sense that dictatorships only survive because of the force of personality of the leader. Once the leader is killed, the whole system falls down because it relies on the leader controlling everyone. Whereas a monarchy is a system where if the leader's head is chopped off and the leader is gone, the system itself continues because people believe in that political structure and they say, that guy was bad but we believe the structure is good for us. And so we'll replace them by someone who we think is better. And there are you know, many, many examples in British history where the, the monarch was booted out because people became very dissatisfied with their leadership like um, Henry VI or uh, Edward II. I think what we need is political structures which will get us future oriented, which will compete with each other and work, work to the betterment of people where people have a lot more choice. It's going to be really hard to get there because our current political structures don't want to give up power. Most, most times in history, uh, political structures were replaced because, because they became weak internally and they were conquered from without. But that can't happen anymore because our current political structures, no matter how much decay they cause, uh, have nuclear weapons. It's very hard to get rid of a political structure that has a nuclear weapon. Does so, a monarchy have a nuclear weapon? Yeah, I, I would hope that we can get to a world where uh, it's commonly recognized that nuclear weapons are a disaster. Well, I think humanity. we're already there. I think it's commonly recognized that nuclear weapons are a disaster, but it's nuclear disarmament is something that has been slow Right and stalled, and I think even Russia now is increasing its nuclear arsenal. Um, if the 
US was to balkanize, uh, become city-states and complete full nuclear disarmament, Russia would be in a very, very strong position against this part, this geography of the world. Yeah, that's it's right. This is one of the um, things that needs to be recognized. The other, the other side of the coin is that if you move to a system of city-states, each individual city-state doesn't have as much political power or military power and so are more vulnerable. Uh, and the other downside is, of, of course, city-states fighting with each other. I mean, the, the, there was a lot of conflict and warfare between the Renaissance states, but the end result was we had the Renaissance, which is, you know, an incredible flourishing of human civilization. One last thing I want to say is I think, and I made this claim earlier, I think democracy slowly but surely leads to anarchy. I think we're seeing this already. Uh-huh. I, I think we're seeing this in America's great cities. We're seeing decay uh, and the very obvious signs of decivilization. You go to San Francisco, you go to Seattle, go yeah. to go to uh, Chicago, go to Baltimore, go to Detroit, which is one of the you know shining jewels of the American. You only have to economy. go to Twitter to see it. It's it, it's incredible to see, and I I think it's it points to uh, the obvious decline of America, and what it reminds me of is the decline of the Roman Empire. I would I would argue a decline in a certain political wing of America. It feels to me like it's very much on the left Democratic uh, uh, Democratic Party run states. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think the, these are the that's the side of the political spectrum that is most pro-democracy, most power to the people, most economic power to the people. We need to get power out of the corporations, get power, as I said, out of monarchies, corporations and monarchies and take that power and put it into the people. I think that's where you see the greatest decay. Uh, and, and America's great cities at their core, if you go to the, the central parts of these cities, now a lot of them look like third world countries now. They, they really do. You go, to, you, you go to downtown Seattle, it looks like... It We're looks talking like, small parts of these cities. Go to, go to San, I, I would say large parts of San Francisco look like a third world city with skyscrapers. Okay, I'm going to need you to explain that to me because I've spent time in third world countries and I've been to San Francisco and I, I can see the decay. I, I, I've seen, uh, uh, what's it, the tenderloin in San Francisco when I was out running. I was like, what the fuck is going on here? And I'm aware of what's happening in Seattle. I'm seeing New York, which is a place I've been traveling to for 20 years. Uh, my last visit was really, really depressing. Uh seeing seeing just some of the things I saw there with regards to uh, the growth in the homeless problem, drugs problems. So like I, I am like aware of it, but I've also spent time in third world countries I, and it's not the same to me. I have too. I've spent time in Africa. I've spent time in India. I mean, the, the amount of human feces on the streets of San Francisco, the amount of homelessness, the amount of drug addiction, uh, I don't think it's just parts of San Francisco. I don't think it's just the Tenderloin. I think it's the Mission. I think it's ver- various neighborhoods, the, ha- the, the hate. Um, I think it's fixable as well. Um, I've, I've been trying to get this uh, guy, Michael Schellenberger, on the show. He wrote this book, San Francisco. He's campaigning to try and fix the problems of San Francisco. And it feels to me it's just a political problem and they've got fucking morons in power there. And, and my assumption is that w- that is where hopefully democracy will prove its power by electing in better leaders 
into these jurisdictions to fix these problems. Yeah, I think this is probably something where we disagree with. I think okay. it's, I think it's a structural problem. I think the system itself is creating this, and I think it, we we could bet on this. I think. 10 years from now, San Francisco will be in a worse state. But I think there are a lot of different measures where you can see- Unless they get a Republican in. And this well, goes back to- like, I don't think they can. That's the problem. You, could, it's, you can't be a Republican and get elected in San Francisco. I think what San Francisco needs is San Francisco needs to be run by Google or Apple. And I think if you- It's if, a fair argument. If Google ran San Francisco, it would be an incredible- Incredible place to go. But but will it? Because we've seen even within these uh, large tech companies, the the left-wing uh, uh, attacks from within, like Twitter is now a very much a progressive left-wing company which will censor the opinions it doesn't like right? and will remove a president, a sitting president from Twitter despite the arguments against his uh, use of Twitter. Uh, we've seen it with Spotify. We know there's influence within there. It's trying to censor Rogan. The, could it not just be a repeat of the same problems? Or do you do you genuinely think these companies can solve it? They are certainly very left-wing internally. Yeah. But they're not run in a left-wing way. They're not democracies internally. Google has a CEO and Google has executives that make executive decisions. They is can, it a monarchy? Is Google a monarchy? It is a monarchy. It absolutely <laughs> is a monarchy. Uh and so if, some, if a company like Google took over San Francisco, they would act in an executive way and say, there are serious problems here. We're not going to tolerate people defecating on the streets of our property, just as they would not tolerate people defecating on, on the campus of Google. You'd, you'd be arrested and you know taken to jail. I really think that the structural problem needs to be addressed. It's not just we need to change this leader. We need to change the structure so that the people in power can think about the future of the city and what's good for the future of the city. I just don't think the structure makes that possible right now. And like I said, in the past, what would happen is these systems would become so weak, they'd get conquered from outside because you know you have a city state which be has become decadent and then the Spartans come and they conquer you because you've become too weak. We, we don't have that, we, we, we don't have the ability uh, to get there because these city-states are now protected by something which is like an asymmetric barrier, that which is the nuclear weapon. Our political structure, I don't think, can be overturned. This is what worries me the most. We're not going to get to a future-oriented state. To get back to the topic of this, I think the great filter is not behind us, it's ahead of us because our political structures are completely failed. We're now at a point where we can do asymmetric damage to society and the potent combination of these two things is gonna end human civilization unless we radically overturn what, what we have today. Okay, before we get there, because I do wanna bring it back full circle, uh, one thing we, uh, we, we kind of, uh, we didn't complete was the talking about the downsides of these uh, city states. Um, the two examples you gave, Singapore and um, Dubai. Dubai. Uh, I've have I've got friends uh, who left Singapore. They said it's become completely authoritarian. And with regards to to Dubai, uh, the only thing I think of with regards to uh, a city state is, such as that is the. Uh, I think progressives have done a lot for the world. I think the progressives have done a lot for equality. Uh, an opportunity, and I know that's not always. This is not always a popular type of topic. It, it, certainly, Bitcoin circles, but 
I would run wonder what would happen to human rights, civil rights, you know, equality of opportunity. Um, you know, Dubai is very much a patriarchy. Uh, it's a subject that again people don't like to be discussed, and there are certain people within. Uh, our cohort who think uh, we've gone too far on equality and, uh, and feminism has uh, uh, stopped women having babies and yada yada. But somebody who's a single dad who has a daughter who has said to him, why can't I do this that the boys are doing? I'm never going to turn around and say, well, because you're a woman and you need to be preparing to have babies and look after a home. Like She deserves to do whatever she wants with her life. Mm-hmm. Um my worry is on a city state what happens to the advances in equality and human and civil rights yeah that's a great question i have two daughters and gonna have a third so those are that, that's you're gonna have three daughters three daughters yes holy fuck lucky you've got that boy <laughs> the week, with the weekends that you two are going to be escaping from the madness of I, of four women attacking you especially when they're teenagers but so you know i i completely sympathize what, with what you're saying and I, it's a legitimate concern I would say that it's possible to have left-wing monarchies. It's possible. Google is what I would say a left-wing monarchy. And it's possible to to have those values valued in a society. I think it would be much better to have a lot of different small city-states with very different political values and you find the one that meets your political values. I think it's it's very dangerous to think that these values should be imposed on other societies and to impose political structures on them. I think one of the greatest geopolitical disasters of the last, I would say of this century, was the belief that we should take democracy to the Middle East. I think democracy is a political structure which has essentially destroyed the Middle East. Uh, My dad always said something to me. Uh, It was after the uh, Iraq war. And he said to me, he said, Saddam Hussein was clearly a, a bad dude. Uh, he and his sons were tyrannical and they tortured people and they gassed the Kurds and they're clearly bad dudes, he said. But Iraq was a relatively stable nation. Relatively peaceful, yeah. Relatively peaceful, um, mainly because a lot of people were in fear of him. Mm-hmm. Now, is that right or wrong? I, I don't know. You can argue both sides. Like I think you, you can argue from a net position of net good, net bad, he's a bad dude, but was it net good for the way the country was able to uh, kind of coordinate? And I don't know the answer to that, but I, I see uh, my view on the Middle East, if it, if it, if it ever became democratic, it, it had to be something that would come within. A bit like with uh, expansion of women's rights within Saudi Arabia, that's come really from within. And I always feel like it, uh, kind of trying to impose the will and the culture of your country, the United States or the UK on a wildly different country with a different history is fraught with danger as we've seen. Yeah, same thing with Afghanistan. They yeah. were, the, the people who went in there were trying to sort of spread these very woke values which did not fly in a very, very conservative society uh, and, and most of the people who were working on that had to leave when when the US left because they didn't have the power structure behind them to try and get those those values in but what, what but that's you... also really sad what's happening in Afghanistan because for whatever people think about Afghanistan and the main one of the main issues with Afghanistan was actually the destruction of the Iraq war because there was a lot of progress in Afghanistan and girls young girls were going to school 
that was happening. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. That was one of the good outcomes of the Afghanistan war is, the war is that the opportunity for women within the country who are largely oppressed. And that's all been undone now. If it's going to happen, though, like like you said, I think it has to happen organically. Yeah. And what you're saying, what you said about Saddam Hussein or what your dad said is one of those very sort of uncomfortable truths. Yeah. And if, we, if we're going to get to a better world, we need to talk about these uncomfortable truths. We need to talk about the downsides of our system and we need to not assume that de- democracy is a panacea, uh-huh. which a lot of people speak about democracy as a panacea that the problem with our societies, we don't have enough democracy or we need to defend democracy. We need to think about the problems caused by democracy because these problems uh, I I think are going to make us very vulnerable to extinction. And I don't want that. I want, I want our species to survive. Okay. Back full circle. We've got a football match to go and watch soon. (laughs) I told you when you do it in person, these conversations are like 50% longer. Uh, so what are the what are the biggest risks to uh, the great filter? You you say it's in the future. I see there's a there's a great argument that actually it's in the past because we went from single cell to where we are today, two friends sitting opposite each other in this lovely place having a conversation. So I, I see the argument that it was in the past, getting to multicell organisms was perhaps a great filter, but you say it's maybe in the future. Maybe there's multiple great filters. Um, but what are the biggest risks that you see for this kind of like doomsday scenario end of humanity? I think probably the number one risk is the development of asymmetric weapons, weapons that can be bought cheaply, uh, that can cause a lot of damage to a lot of people. Because I think once that happens, people will tolerate societies which are complete surveillance of societies and you can't have the flourishing of civilization in a surveillance of society i don't think that's possible that's the number one thing there are other risks like development of viruses which could potentially end end humanity i'm less concerned it was a big concern maybe 50 years ago of nuclear weapons ending society i think it's it's much harder for uh the extremes of the social spectrum to get hold of nuclear weapons and do asymmetric damage that way uh, I just believe, and I, you can search for this. This is there are articles of the development of drones carrying munitions. I remember the first time I saw that. I, was I it thought, Maduro? Did somebody try to bomb Maduro? Perhaps yeah. I, don't, I, I don't remember, but I just saw that was some military organization developing this. Maybe it was the U.S. military. And when I saw the article, I thought this is the end of civilization right here. A cheap weapon that can be easily deployed and controlled remotely by a computer that can work in swarms. That's the end of civilization. Uh, so, and, and even even if you say these are illegal, that doesn't mean you can't stop their development, uh, because you can have people who are developing them in private with three D printers. Uh, so, in a society which has become sufficiently advanced that individuals can print and develop technologies like this, maybe it's the end of us. Uh, and when you say the end, uh, it feels like you're not saying it's the we go to a position where there's no human life left on earth it's more that we've reached peak development and we we start going backwards exactly right yeah, yeah. i mean it could also be the end of us as well where you you could imagine a world where society has crumbled enough that the we have so many nuclear weapons that, that they become available in the black market and that people are able to deploy them 
Uh, so we have much bigger weapons than drones. It's just it's hard to get hold of them right now uh, in a society which has collapsed because these technologies make it possible for individuals to do a lot of damage and society starts crumbling, then those worst, even worse technologies become uh, more easily available. So how, how do we fix this in, if, in your mind? is Obviously, I don't expect you to have the complete answer, but what are the things you're thinking about with regards to this? And uh, I'm obviously reticent to say Bitcoin fixes this because I think that is uh, <laughs> certainly not the answer. But what, what are the things that you've either researched or that you're thinking about that keep us away from this doomsday scenario? I think we first need to talk about it. We, okay. need, we need to recognize that it's a, it's a p- potential uh, disaster waiting for us in the near future. I think um, sort of orthogonal to preventing it, we need our civilization to advance much more quickly than it is. We need much more capital accumulation. We need to be much more wealthy. We need to be able to send people to the moon for a very low price. This is what I'm, you know, really admire, or Mars. We need. I really admire Elon Musk for this. He's thinking about this, and he's thinking about the costs. Like, how much would it cost to send a person to Mars right now? It probably costs like a billion dollars. That's clearly not cost effective. Up, up, up. Oh, trillion dollars, <laughs> yeah. maybe. So, yeah, you're right. Probably, yeah. probably a billion dollars would be very cheap because then some people would probably be already going to Mars, but. Yeah. Uh, a, a trillion dollars. We can only get there if our economic structures, our political structures allow for much greater accumulation of capital than is happening now. We need a, we need a new renaissance. We need a modern renaissance. Uh, and, and we can't do that without changing our structures. There are, there are arguments against Musk and his ideas for going to Mars that it's not really habitable and i know he talked about uh terraforming mars uh, i've heard that it's ridiculous it's not possible and the ideas about terraforming mars are uh pipe dreams and completely unrealistic um and that uh creating sustainable life on mars is almost impossible and actually all that money could be redirected to uh better projects here on earth and fixing what we have here. I'm split. Uh, I think there's a little bit defeatist because, okay. you know, I, I think we can dream of futures that seem very difficult or impossible in the present. I mean, there are a lot of humans who thought we would never be able to fly or never be able to get to the moon. And when humans first left the earth in a hot air balloon, it was a miraculous moment. Wow, maybe we can. Maybe it's possible. Maybe we can dream that we can do it. And I think that uh, we should be at least dreaming about that. I think it's possible. I definitely think we can get to Mars. Whether or not we can colonize Mars, that's a different question because we have all these biological constraints. We evolved on a planet with a certain amount of gravity. What happens when we're on a planet which has much less gravity? What happens when we don't have any natural resources? Can we terraform Mars? These are big questions. This is why when I say we need to be more future-oriented, I'm not talking about political structures that help us think about 20 years ahead. I'm talking about 20 generations ahead. Or, but we you, talked about the change in society in 20 years or even 100 years, 20 generations ahead. So we're running out of yeah. time. We are running out of time. Have you seen the doomsday clock? No. There's a thing, there's a doomsday clock, and it's like how close we are to catastrophe. I think we're, Danny, can you look up where we are? I think we're like one minute to midnight. 
midnight's <laughs> catastrophe. We might have moved it to like one second. They keep getting to these smaller. We're at 100 seconds to midnight. We're 100 seconds to midnight. That's yeah. how close to doomsday we are. I really believe that. I think we are very close to a catastrophic end for our civilization. And unless we start talking about this, unless we start talking about solutions to this, unless we start realizing that the solution will mean thinking many, many generations ahead, not just thinking about, oh, we have 7% inflation now. How, how are we going to fix that? No, how do we corral the resources of humanity to think about escaping the earth? The earth is our womb. We were, we were sort of born and, and grew in the womb, but eventually we have to escape. If we don't escape, that's it. We're never going to answer the big questions. We're never going to survive as a species. We have to escape the earth. Uh, so whether it's difficult or not, we need to put our focus on that and, and, and think about how we get there and what we need to change to get there. Hmm. I do struggle with that. I do think of the resources that go into that. And, you know, is that a lifeboat so we can uh, maintain the human race as the earth is destroyed? Like those science fiction films where you see like a spaceship leave and it's got like a hundred people on it and then like some embryos and <laughs> various plants. Is, is that what we're talking about doing and hoping to find some planet we can colonize and or, or are we t really talking about being a multi-planetary species? Because, I don't know, I still feel that those resources, I don't think it's defeatist as well, but I still feel like perhaps those resources could be focused to problems here. But maybe we're both right. Could be. I mean, I, I like to think about it from the more big picture perspective. I think getting back to it, you know, Enrico Fermi, mm -hmm. looking up at the night sky and saying, where are they? Uh, I think there isn't any other life out there i think you don't think there is no do you think we are the only species in the only planet with life in the whole of the i think universe? so i think so at least i hope so do you think because of the great filter or we're a fluke uh i i hope we're the only one because then maybe the the, the great filter question kind of goes away and the reason we don't see other species is just because we are so unique and that life was so improbable that's my hope that we're the only species. But if we are the only species, life is incredibly precious in this uh -huh. uh, unbelievably large universe that we can't fully comprehend. We're the only life. So I think we need to focus on how do we make life continue. I think we should be thinking about colonizing our solar system and the galaxy with life. We should be sending out bacteria. We should be sending out, uh, you know, you know, uh, plant matter and things like that with the hope that we can colonize other planets so that if we destroy ourselves if the earth ends life isn't lost in the universe i think it's such a precious thing such a weird thing it's weird to think about <laughs> i know about with it. our everyday concerns and with you know with doom scrolling tiktok or instagram we don't think about these big Do you questions have TikTok? no i don't <laughs> <laughs> i don't I it's don't. gonna become part of your life in the next five to ten years <laughs> you won't escape it i I have Instagram. I barely have Instagram. I only use it to follow my wife because she posts a lot of pictures of our kids. But uh, I see things like that and I, I feel so worried because people are so focused on what's right here in front of their nose and they're not, they're not looking far enough to, uh, ahead to see what the big picture is for not just their family but our, our species. We have much, much bigger questions to answer and we're so focused on the present. I flip. Sometimes I think 
there's life form throughout the universe, but it's just so far away. And then sometimes I just think it's a complete fluke. I, I you know, I look at the read up on DNA and the structure of DNA and chromosomes, and I think, how does how does that how does that spark happen to create those elements of what becomes you know, multi cell organisms? It and seems miraculous, it, doesn't it? It seems it seems by design. We, we've never been able to replicate it, trying to get the conditions of early Earth and uh, sort of simulate having all these amino acids and proteins floating around and try and get it to something that looks like life. We've never been able to make it happen. So it does seem designed. I'm, I'm, not, uh, I, I, I'm not particularly religious, but um, it, it's hard not to think that something that improbable happened just out of this big soup of yeah, big amino. Soup. With, with a lightning strike. <laughs> yeah. Soup. Somebody sparked life. Yeah. It's a great topic. It fascinates me. Um, and I share similar concerns. But I also try and be an optimist a bit more these days. Try and enjoy my time here. But I definitely think about it. I, I think you would really enjoy sitting down with Austin Hill. Uh, I'm going to send you the show I made with him on the singularity. We, we're talking about very similar things. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I think you would enjoy sitting down and talking to him and, and sharing uh, some of these ideas. The singularity, just sorry to interrupt, but the, the, the singularity is the, the optimi optimistic side of the coin of the great filter, which is that things are getting better faster and faster. And we're going to live in this kind of technological utopia. We're going to be able to upload our brain into the cloud and be much smarter than we are. Do you want to do that? Because that's, that's another great filter. If we upload ourselves all to the cloud, we don't need these uh, fallible biological bodies that's right and then maybe our intelligence leaves the earth and we survive in that way um there's a great show on this by the way called altered carbon uh where people are able to upload themselves into the cloud and then if they get killed they can find a new body and have it down their their self downloaded into a new body it's a, is it's it got, their actual self is it their soul or is it just a version of themselves and would they ever know that they're the same one well, those are great questions that are addressed by the show. It sort of goes into all of these different hypotheticals about are you really you uh, or are you someone else? Well, what happens if you end up in a disc in a drawer? Yeah, it, it goes, it goes into all that fa fascinating <laughs> stuff, fascinating stuff. Oh, man. Well, listen, loved this. Absolutely loved it. Is there anything we didn't cover? We covered it all. We covered it all, man. Okay, well, listen, VJ, uh, Love talking to you. I'm really glad we got to do this in person. And uh, thanks for being, being a friend over the, the years uh, I've been in Bitcoin. Um, I've reached out to you many times with questions or you've always got back to me. So I, I really, really appreciate you uh, coming in today to do this. T tell people where they can find out uh, where they can get your book from and go buy a fucking book. <laughs> uh, you can find it on Amazon, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. I, I make the argument that Bitcoin is the best form of money and how money evolves and why why Bitcoin is uh, a great store of value. Uh, so you can find that on Amazon or you can find me on Twitter, a real underscore VJ. All right, man. Well, listen, uh, let's go and watch a football match and great to see you. Thanks for having me, Pete. All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. 